Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm pumped to have John Warlow on the show with me today. John is the creator of the Value Builder System, a statistically proven methodology for improving a company's value by up to 71%. John is also the creator of the Sellability Score and the author of the best-selling book, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, which was recognized by both Fortune and Inc. Magazine as one of the best business books of 2011. Built to Sell has been translated into four languages. John's new book, The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry, was released by Random House in February 2015. We're going to talk a little bit about both books, so just hold on there. Prior to starting the Value Builder System, John started and exited four companies, including a quantitative market research business that was acquired by the Corporate Executive Board in 2008. John has been recognized by B2B Marketing as one of the top business-to-business marketers in the United States. An aging but avid sportsman, John has dragged his body around five marathon courses, one, mar- one Ironman triathlon, and the La Top de Tour bike race. John was born in England and grew up in Canada. He now lives with his family in Toronto. John, thanks so much for the work you do and for being on the show today. Well, thanks for having me, Charlie. You've got a lot going on. I, that's one of the things I love about you. I've been I've been watching you for a while, and so you're you're running and you're you, you know you're doing the Iron Man and you're writing these books and selling companies. It's fantastic. Well, that's that's very kind of you. Just trying to keep up with you, Charlie. <laughs> As if. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. What was your first business, and what was the biggest lesson you learned from it? Well, I I started a radio production years ago, and uh, uh, this is long before podcasts. This is early 90s, and I had the idea that entrepreneurs would want to learn from other entrepreneurs, and so I interviewed a different entrepreneur for this radio show uh, every day for the better part of three years, and I, it was syndicated nationally and so forth. And I mean, I learned a ton because it was all these entrepreneurs who had, uh, you know, built businesses that I was interviewing. And I asked them the question, you know, what, you know, what would, you, if you could do it all over again, what would, you, well, now, now knowing what you know, you know, what would you do differently? And, um, you know, one comment strikes me as, as being germane. And it was from a guy named Greg Clark who ran a company called College Pro. And he said, you know, I would learn not to get so high on the highs and not to get so low on the lows. Stabilize the emotional sort of equilibrium a little bit because entrepreneurship can be a very emotional roller coaster, right? Very, very emotional on both ends. And, and he, he built a, a pretty good sized company and that was his advice. That always stuck with me. That's a really good one. I, didn't, I had no idea you were going to say that one, obviously. But um, yeah, that really is part of it. And especially with the highs and lows, when you start thinking of family dynamics that happens with entrepreneurs and business owners, just one of the challenging things that people who aren't in business don't understand is like when you have a job, in a lot of ways you can leave the job at work, right? You can leave a lot of that there. Not all jobs, but a lot of them, right? But when you start, when you're an entrepreneur, you start your own business, like all of that energetic roller coaster that you're on, that comes home with you. And so I, I think that's fantastic. I had the uh, opportunity to interview Tim Ferriss for a, an article I was working on for Inc. And I said, you know, you built this company that, that supposedly, you know, runs without you and all you need is four hours a week to make all this money. So, I mean, it sounds like utopia. Why on earth did you sell it? 
I thought that was a fair question. And, and his response was brilliant. He said, you know what, John? I felt like a computer, my mind was like a computer running antivirus software, uh, software in the background. All my energy was being used up. What, I didn't have to actually show up, but all my mental energy was churning through that. And uh, that, that analogy really you know, identified with me because you're right. I mean, we could be at home playing with the kids, doing whatever, but in the back of your mind, it's always grinding away. So, yeah, it's a challenge. One of the things that intrigues me about you is that from at least what I know of you, you're a maven in sort of that Malcolm Gladwell, maven connector salesperson thing. Might be wrong about that, but anyways, you seem to be a maven, and yet you've managed to now become a nationally recognized thought leader on business-to-business marketing, of all things. Um, how closely has your career tracked what you thought it might be when you started it? Oh, man, uh, not at all. Uh, um, it, it really hasn't, and, and, and uh, mine is... is- my career has been much more of a of a of a meandering path than a linear uh, kind of arc. I think um, you know I tend to be the type of person that's kind of always sort of looking f- you know at things that maybe aren't working and try to try to fix that. Uh, I talk to my kids about you know I try to explain they're they're seven and nine so they're young. I try to explain to them what they do and and. My seven-year-old in particular has kind of interest in entrepreneurship and in, in, in the way a seven-year-old would. And he calls it being an inventor, by the way. And, uh, and so I tried to explain it to him I, uh, like this. I said, buddy, if you want to be an inventor, try to go through life um, thinking about how situations could be made better by an idea that you could come up with. So if you're in line at whatever, at McDonald's, how could we make this just a little bit faster? And, and that's where you start to learn about and cultivate that, that curiosity, that sense of trying to fill, you know, solve problems or whatever. Again, that's how I sort of describe it to a seven-year-old. I don't, I don't know what the adult version of that is, but that's, that's I guess, my career in a, in a nutshell. Solving one problem at a time and making it a little bit better as you go. Yeah, that's totally a maven. So, what were one to three spark moments in your career where you saw that it was time to step into a new and better direction? Hmm, what a great question. Um, you know, I, I guess one of them would would have been, um, you know, the sale of my last company. Uh, it was, you know, a relatively emotional kind of like – I'd spent 10 years building it. So it was sort of a fairly big deal to, to, to leave it. And, um, and that's when we, uh, my wife and I and our two kids at the, uh, you know, were even younger at the time we moved to Europe. We spent three years over in France and, uh, and that was a real switch. It was a sort of sabbatical. Uh, I did some writing over there. That's where I wrote, uh, and did a lot of the editing. I should, should say around built to sell my, my first book, um, so that was a pretty big game changer. Um, living in another country, totally different cultural inputs. Um, you know, didn't have a day job to go to every day, so that just felt very different and, and pretty exciting. Cool. So that was one. Um, talk about sort of the the jump from the radio show to your quantitative market research business, because imagine that was a jump too. Yeah, uh, and there was a couple businesses between there, but but uh, the, the the you know the Again, it was somewhat, um, I would say, opportunistic maybe is the right word because from the radio show, the the largest uh, sponsor of the radio show was a a large national bank. 
um, up in Canada. So kind of the equivalent of say a Wells Fargo or a JP Morgan Chase in, in the United States. And they, uh, you know, they were sponsoring the show in an effort to understand and market to small business owners. And so they asked me, Hey, you know, you, you've, you've been interviewing all these guys. Can you help give us some advice about how to market to them? And I went in the first couple of times for free and, and then started charging them for advice. And that's the very early kind of inklings or, or steps in, in, in the, in the consulting and research business that I built, which, uh, which was involved in helping big companies market to small companies. So were you able to manage both the radio show and that new business or did you have to like the radio show go? The radio show really was coming to a natural kind of end. And, and so there was a bit of crossover, but, um, but, but not a, you know, not a, uh, not a ton. So yeah, I was able to manage both. Okay. So it wasn't one of those big turbulent, like I got to let go of one to do the new thing that sometimes happens in entrepreneurship where you can't, you can't grow two at once and you got to make a choice there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a tumultuous exit. The, uh, uh, the production company that I was involved with, uh, acquired the show and, and, and I moved on. So it was, it was not a big deal. How long did you spend in England, by the way? I was born there and I moved when I, my parents were five. Or, sorry, I moved when I was five and my parents moved us as a family. They emigrated. I've still got family over there. We go over usually once a year. Uh, but I, you know, I'm, I'm very much Canadian. I don't think of myself as, as English that, you know, that much. Yeah, I was noticing. I was, I, you know, we've talked before, but I was like, I didn't remember him having an English accent. And you don't. Um, so I was just curious about that. Yeah. All right, let's switch to your books for a little bit here. Sure. The main reason I love Built to Sell is that it focuses on building a service business or service-oriented business in your language um, that the owner can actually sell rather than what we so often see with product-heavy businesses, which is a different dimension. So many of the people listening to the show may not be thinking about selling their business or perhaps they think they can't, which in my experience is where a lot of service-based business owners feel they are. So what's the... What's been the most common bit of feedback you get about your bit about your book that has surprised you along those lines? Uh, it's a crappy name. <laughs> it's the most common feedback we get. <laughs> it's a terrible name, and that's because you know so few business owners uh, want to sell their company tomorrow. It, most business owners, in my experience, uh, uh, would like to know that they could sell their business, but very few actually want to sell. And so uh, oftentimes the number one rating on Amazon, uh, you know, it's the, you know, you can look at Amazon and look at the ratings and look which ones were most helpful to other reviewers. And the one that's most helpful to other reviewers is always, you know, great book, crappy name, <laughs> which I'm, which is great. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's, a, the idea, of course, behind the book is whether you want to sell in a year or 25 years or just know you have an asset that you could sell, the idea is that for a lot of service companies, um, they can't. They, they're, they're just, it's really just a glorified or veiled job because the, the owner is doing all the work. And so that's really the, the idea behind the book is to, is, to, is to get out of that trap and into a more of a, a company that can scale beyond just you personally. Yeah, when people ask me about the book, and I love the book, by the way. I don't know how, how often I've told you that, but I do love the book. Oh, uh, and so I often tell people it's like the e-myth, but focused more on actually selling the business rather than growing the business, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. The E Myth is, I mean, even to be compared in the same breath as Michael Gerber is is generous because I mean that's the the Bible uh, for many small businesses. Almost every small business that uh, comes to talk to me, I say here, read, read the E Myth first and come back and talk to me after you've read it because it's such an important book. Yeah, and you you touched on one of the things that's a common reaction for that I get about the E Myth is we get you know. Seth Godin calls it the freelancer versus the entrepreneur. I call it the craftsman versus the entrepreneur, right? So we get people who make craft businesses and aren't owning the fact that they actually do just want to make pies, right? Um, right. That's what they want to do. They started the business to make pies, and so there doesn't seem to be much room in that for them to say, you know what, I'm not building a franchise. I don't want to build it like a franchise. And granted, they're missing some of the points that, that Gerber is making, but... I think there are a lot of people, and I think we're going to see more of that sort of mindset as internet businesses become much broader and you don't need the business structure that we did in the 80s and 90s. I mean, let's, it's a new world, right? Yeah, absolutely. Here we are talking face-to-face, miles away. You're right. I, um, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the tragedy, however, is where, where people uh, – start a business, pour all of the profits back into the business, never take a dime out of the business, wake up in 25 years and say, okay, I'm ready to retire now or whatever. And, and there's nothing to sell because they've structured it and just to make pies. Uh, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with just being a freelance writer or just being a freelance, uh, photographer or web designer or whatever, but just know that, that you've got to make sure you're paying yourself adequately throughout because there's not going to be that kind of pot at the end of the rainbow. Um, alternatively, all those businesses, photography, uh, web design, copywriting, and so forth, can be structured as sellable companies if you follow the process of the book. So you know, it's, it's up to you, but you, you make the point. Totally up to people. And what I always tell them is, you know, when we start talking about systems building and thinking strategically like this, it gives you those options, which is roughly what you mentioned. It gives you the option to grow this way or that way. And I forgot this. I didn't research this statistic before this call, but what we often don't realize is one of the biggest reasons people exit their visit, exit their business is disability. It's not actually them wanting to sell it. It's that they get hurt, injured, you know, so on and so forth. And that really drove home to me in 2012 when I was in a car accident, right? And it really cramped my creative capacity. I was, you know, doing all that kind of what, and I was like, holy crap! Like, what if it had completely like wipe me out as opposed to put me at a quarter speed, right? Um, and so there's just something to think about. If you're if you're a craft business person, right, first off, we love you and thank you for doing that, right? And be aware that you're exposed to these types of risks that if, you know, um, if you're hurt, what happens then, right? If you're disabled, what happens then? And what are you going to do in 15 years? Um, are you just going to retire? And how are you funding that retirement? Yeah, you know, it, 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 and it happens at all ages, right? It happened to you at a relatively young age. Uh, very often when we talk to older business owners in their 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, and you look at what the trigger event was for them to want to sell their company, um, the number, there are two trigger events. Uh, one of them is being proactively approached by a competitor saying, Hey, would you like to, you know, would you like to sell your business? That's number one. Number two, to your point is a health scare where either they personally have a health event, a heart attack or something, or someone they love, someone close to them has some sort of health event and they realize that, uh, you know, they don't, they're not going to live forever and that they do need to, uh, to consider, uh, exiting. So, all righty. So, in the automatic customer, you mentioned that you screwed up by not devoting more of the book, more of built to sell to recurring revenue. 
How did you know you had screwed up? Well, my day job is running this company called Value Builder System. And for Value Builder System, we've got something like 14,000 different businesses who have gone through and, and started to improve the value of their company. And we look at the statistics. And one of the statistics that stood out to me is that recurring revenue, subscription revenue, annuity revenue, companies, customers that come back on a recurring basis – when you've got companies that have that recurring revenue, they're worth many, many times that of a similar business that has a kind of a, a one-off uh, business model. If you, if you take one example uh, that I write about in the book, is it's a security industry. So these are the guys that install the security systems in your office, in your home. Um, if, you, if you take a business that just does the installation, the one-off revenue, they're worth about 75 cents on the dollar of revenue. If you take a business, security business that just does the monitoring revenue, the recurring revenue, uh, that's worth about $2 for every dollar of revenue. And so uh, just an enormous improvement in the value of a business by creating these recurring revenue streams. And so, yeah, I write about these nine different models. And, and in Built to Sell, you know, I, I talked about recurring revenue, but it was kind of an afterthought. I mean, 90% of the book was really about creating the systems, figuring out one thing that can do teachable, valuable, repeatable. Um, and, and I didn't give enough attention to this notion of recurring revenue. So I wanted to write that wrong with this, uh, this new book and, and really dig in on subscription models. So there weren't, you know, angry mobs of readers that are like, you got this wrong and, you know, burning yeah. your name in pitchforks. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Well, the reason I say that is because so many authors, when they write their first book, and I'm the same way when I wrote The Small Business Life Cycle, like, there's all this other stuff that I could have written in there. And like you see a year or two years after the fact, it's like, wow, should have included that. But I think that happens for every book that we write. You just have to decide at a certain point that you're done with it. Not that the book is done, but you're done with it and you got to move on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, who was the famous artist who said, I, you never really finish a painting. Somebody just comes and takes it away. Have you ever heard that expression before? I've heard I heard many things similar about the creative yeah. process when it comes to products like this. You just got to, at a certain point, be like, you know, I did the best I could, and hindsight is always brilliant. But that's also job security for authors. Let's get real. Right. Well, the, the Automatic Customer was a really challenging book to write because – what I, was, what I was attempting to do was codify all of these different subscription models. And the subscription business is changing so dramatically. Like as we speak, in the last month, Starbucks has launched its brand new subscription offering. Uh, AMC Theaters has launched a subscription offering. Um, Apple has changed a lot of its subscription offerings. Amazon continues. So, you know, even as we're even as we're speaking, the model is changing, um, and so I was trying to figure out. You know, once you submit the manuscript, it still takes three or six months to get it on the the shelf, and so you know it's hard to kind of put a line in the sand and say, "Okay, that's where we're going to stop." Because I know that you know the day I head it in, there's going to be some other you know fantastic uh, company doing a subscription model. But suffice it to say, we tried to capture as many of them as could in the book. This is why I don't write about Facebook. That's right. <laughs> the second you hit publish, it's already out of date. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it was interesting because doing a little bit of the research for the book, and I'd already read the book, so I was, you know, just sort of doing the normal thing of, of looking at the internet for possible availabilities. And I don't know if you've seen, um, what is it, Patreon, like a new sort of service that allows web creators to actually set up a subscription to their art. So it's like, I'm going to be making art. You can be patrons. It says P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I was thinking, I need to tell John about that because it's an interesting model for people because 
it's not like the content library promise that you mentioned in there. Like, here's this massive library that you get to. It's like, actually, you're subscribing for the art I might make that's and it. that you'll get to deliver. And I'm like, that's really brilliant, you know? That's a re- I had not heard of that site, but I love it. And I think that's a, that's a great site to, for folks to check out. And in a lot of ways, Charlie, it is taking the subscription model all the way back to where it was invented. If you look back, the subscription model was actually invented back in the 1600s when at the time the British Empire, the lines of the British Empire were being reclaimed and re, you know, redesigned as, as the British Empire expanded. And the aristocracy and the academics at the time went out and hired cartographers on, on spec, basically subscribed, says, as you make new maps, you know, send them to us and we're going to pay you in advance. So it, things are coming full circle in a lot of ways because that, that example of, you know, subscribing to future art is, is, was happening 500 years ago. Yeah, I mean, and when we look at the, the brilliant artists of the Renaissance, Michelangelo, Donatello, they had patrons. And when you think about that entire model, I will give you money and support your lifestyle so that you make this art. It's very true. It's yeah. the same basic thing. It's just in larger lump sums in, in different ways. And so this is nothing new. It's just somehow we went with the Industrial Revolution to you buy a commodity point per point as opposed yeah. to you, you have this promise with the vendor or the business or the artist and there's that type of contract there. So I'm, I'm really excited that it's come back around because we are seeing a renaissance in entrepreneurship, but that's a whole other matter. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that's interesting, Charlie, on that, on that point is that, you know, in the last few months, there's been a lot of buzz about the demand economy. You may have heard about this demand economy. Obviously, guys like Uber are probably the, you know, the emblematic of the demand economy, meaning, you know, instead of having to own a car, you click your iPhone and you have a, a taxi waiting for you in, in moments. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, the subscription economy is the antithesis of that. Whereas in, in the demand economy, you know, the consumer has all the, all the cards, right? And, and in a lot of ways, kind of holds hostage the, the drivers because, you know, they don't have any control over when you decide to pick up your phone. Whereas in the subscription economy, you're saying, oh, hang on a minute. This has got to be a pro pro quo. This has got to be, this can't be one guy wins, the other guy loses. This has got to be a win-win. So, you know, we're going to supply you art, but you've got to, You've got to pony up for that in advance. And, and there's lots of examples in the book where there, you know, customers have to make a commitment to you long term and then you win because they're making a long term commitment. And, and it's that symbiotic nature. It's, um, it's actually quite different than the demand economy. What's funny is obviously when you're a web creator, especially when you have your own business around it, you're sensitive to a lot of things that people who, who don't have those businesses aren't. So for the longest time, I think, especially between 2005 and maybe up to today, there's a lot of people who are consumers on the web that don't recognize how expensive it actually is to run a website, right? How much costs are, are involved. And so on the one hand, we, we have the general reader response, I don't want to see ads. On the other hand, they may not be buying anything either. And so where does all this free content come from? And so it's really interesting that I think as more of us become creatives and as, as more of the costs are illuminated, people are, are setting up these inter, interdependent relationships. It's like, you know what? I love what you do. I'm willing to support it to benefit from it. And we're getting, I think, away from, I'm hoping we're moving away from the tragedy of the commons on the internet, which is basically the, the basic idea is because no one is, owns it and is responsible, it all goes to crap. And it's when people take ownership of the sites and the, and the content that they love that you actually see it increase. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the, the subscription models in the book uh, is called the membership 
uh, model, membership website model, and it describes what you're talking about it, uh, to a T. Basically, you know, we've gone from a time in the, in the 90s where everybody thought information should be free to a point now where they realize that editorial suffers to such an extent when it's free that it's worth paying for good editorial. So you've got the Wall Street Journal, the uh, New York Times, uh, Financial Times in the UK are all now behind a paywall, right? And so they're they're, I think, introducing, even, even in so much as the last year or two, this notion that, that people are willing to pay for good content. And it's opening up the doors to lots of niche websites where there's a paywall. I mean, a good example that, uh, I love this example, is, is, a, is a guy named Mark who runs a company called The Wood Whisperer. And he has an expertise in teaching people how to do woodworking. And he puts all that expertise, videos and content, how-to and forms and so forth, behind a paywall. And he does that and, and has monetized his lifestyle through putting this information out there. So um, it's certainly doable. And I think more so today than it was even two or three years ago when, when newspapers were still kind of experimenting with the paywall. Now it's, it's kind of understood that that's really becoming the, normal, uh, the norm for good content. It's fascinating as the, as the technology changes, the economic models change as well. But think about it. Anytime you buy a book, you've paid to get behind a paywall. Anytime you buy anything like that that's content, you buy a magazine, there's a paywall there. It's just that you, we, we haven't associated it that way. And I think as, as the mediums and as the way that we primarily consume you know, information goes digital as opposed to electronic, I think we're going to go back to like, oh, yeah, we needed to pay for our newspaper. We also need to pay for you know, these other things, too. So it's, it's, a, it's a fun world, and we have no idea how it's going to shake out. Um, in Built to Sell, you told a fictional story to highlight the principles of building a sellable business, but in the automatic customer, you used a more model or framework-based arc with real-world stories and cases. Why'd you switch things up that way? I've never really thought about that, Charlie, to be honest. You're, you're absolutely right. Built to Sell is a parable, so similar to the e-myth where there's a guy and a story and, 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 uh, and, uh, and in the automatic customer, it, it, is, it is more, to your point, uh, sharing a framework i guess because i guess because there are so many interesting examples of subscription companies out there that i felt it was it was uh there's just a lot to talk about I, maybe i didn't need the crutch of uh of a parable um because there are just so many very interesting stories I, you know I, I don't know the answer i'm just i'm I'm just thinking about it as you ask the question, but I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. But you're absolutely right. One is a parable. The other, uh, the automatic customer is uh, uh, is more prescriptive, I guess, in nature. Yeah, I like both books. Love both books. I actually like the model that you use in the automatic customer better. So just feedback is because it allowed me, especially as someone who reads a lot of books, and really, I want to go back to that chapter that talked about that model. And I'm like, where in the story did we talk about that? So <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, in the UK, is it out of interest, um, they hate parable books. Parable books have become quite normal, uh, very common in, in the United States. Pat Lanchoni's, all of his work is, is all parables, uh, the e-myths, and, you know, they become quite normal. In the UK, they hate them. They, they say, oh, it's a cop-out. The authors should just say how they feel as opposed to just hiding behind. So interesting that uh, you share that feedback. I'm not on the hate scale, but I'm, I'm on the – if it's a parable, it's really got to be good. Like it's got to be uh, – it's got to provide – so like who ate my cheese or who moved my cheese is one of those parables where I'm like, everybody loves the book. And I'm like, it's like 10 pages, right? Like <laughs> come on, right? <laughs> 
Um, but yeah. I understand the, the different reasons why we understand parables and the story based and blah, 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 all that stuff. But I'm not trying to say that the built to sale is bad. Just different. I noticed that there's a big shift there. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't really intentional or, or thought through in, in, in any specific way. Cool. Um, so I'd like to zoom in on what I believe is one of the best explanations of what happens financially and strategically when a business makes the jump from a standard sort of selling model to a subscription-based format, and that's around the cash flow cycle. Um, so without going into numbers and charts, the basic problem is that all of a sudden a business goes from making large sums of cash per transaction, generally at first or on some type of payment plan, to making smaller sums from a lot of transactions over the long term. Um, and in the short term, while they're making that transition, that wreaks havoc on cash flow. Um, since you're the expert here, talk us through some options for handling that shift and that freak out moment that people have as they start to make that transition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'll tell you my own personal experience in that, Charlie, if, if you want, I, I wrote about, I wrote about a little bit in the book and that when I, I made, we made the switch in my last company where we went from having project-based consulting where, you know, our average project, I can't remember off the top, I think, maybe it was around 50 grand, uh, something like that, our average product, uh, our average project. And so it would take us maybe a month or two to deliver that. And so let's say it's two months. So we divide the 50 grand and we'd recognize it on our profit and loss statement in two installments of 25 grand. And so you had these big lumps of cash and big lumps of revenue. And and then when we switch to the subscription model and a customer says, yes, we'd like the, 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 the subscription. I think we charged about $30,000 for subscription, something, something like that, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, instead of taking the $30,000, you know, on the month you sell it, you've actually got to, according to gap, uh, you know, accounting principles, you've got to divide it up in 12 equal installments. So you go from having two big blips of 25 grand to having these nice, even 12 blips of, of two or 3,000 to three or $4,000 spread across the lifetime of the engagement. And, and that, and that was interesting on, in, in our bank account, we were fine because we charged, we, we charged, unlike a lot of companies, we happen to charge for our subscription upfront. So we got all the money, companies, the customers' money up front. So we were fine uh, from a cash flow perspective. But where I personally found it challenging is looking at the profit and loss statement every month. And, and there's just something, and again, intellectually, I could, I could rationalize that that's way, the, you know, but, but kind of emotionally, when I saw this huge, big red brackets around the numbers at the bottom of the month, I found that really tough to take. And, uh, and, and so you're absolutely right. One of the biggest challenges I think that we run into as, as you move from a subscription, from a transactional company to a subscription company is that we start to use, uh, the old yardsticks, the old measuring sticks of a transaction economy business, meaning largely profit and loss to, and try to apply those to a subscription company. And again, what I saw in interviewing all these different subscription company operators is they actually use a fairly different set of measurement statistics um, and a dashboard that helps them sort of measure how their business is performing. And, uh, and, 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 and that was a different, um, you know, a different approach than, than the traditional company. So I, I tried to sort of articulate how other people uh, measure their performance and their progress so that uh, you, you didn't have that freak out moment. You thought, hey, that's normal and natural when you make this shift. Yeah, I've, I've seen that with some of my clients too. It's like, we're doing this and it's like, but where did that go? It's like, okay, just give it time, right? New metric that we have to look at, churn and you know increase and things like that. They're, they're completely different metrics. But I really appreciate how well you went into that, that hurdle there because it, it can be, 
I think people will oftentimes have a sound strategy that's worth investing in and sticking with, but because of that freak out, they're like, this is not working, we gotta stop. Yeah, and, and, and that's where the, the LTV to CAC ratio is so important. Again, it's a complex formula that, that that's that's sort of hard to explain in, a, in an interview, but basically, if you think about it in its simplest terms, it's, 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 it's the relationship between the lifetime value of a customer and the cost to acquire a customer. So if, if a customer spends $100 a month with you and they stay for two years, 100 times 24 months is $2,400. Their lifetime value is $2,400. If it costs you $200 to acquire that customer, um, you have a 12 to 1 LTV to CAC ratio because 2,400 divided by 200 is 12. So you have a 12 to 1 LTV to CAC ratio, uh, which is a very healthy ratio for a subscription company. You'd, you'd want to invest heavily in a company like that. Um, whereas if it costs you, let's say, uh, $1,100 or 12, excuse, excuse me, $1,200 to, to acquire a customer, your LTV to CAC is only 2 to 1. And that's below the 3 to 1 uh, threshold that most professional investors look for when they go to acquire uh, or invest in subscription companies. They're looking for at least a 3 to 1 LTV to CAC ratio. So uh, that's really where you want to focus your attention in terms of measuring uh, the progress of your business. And you said that was difficult to explain in an interview, but you did a fantastic job with that. <laughs> That's generous. But uh, anyways, it's uh, it, it really is the number that, uh, that most uh, acquirers and investors are looking at. Let's go ahead and start wrapping things up. Um, so you've got four companies that you've started and exited. You've got these two phenomenal books. Um, you're all over the place with Inc. Magazine. Um, you've got kids, seven and nine, you said? That's right. Um you know, you're a runner, you, you got all this going on. So um, I, I want to highlight that because a lot of the Creative Giant show is just showing people are living rich, full lives and still getting stuff done and, and having a blast. And um, we always have challenges. So what's the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? That's a great question. I, you know, I, uh, let me think about that. Um, I'm not sure it's the greatest challenge. There's one that comes to mind. I was talking to my, my wife about it last night. Um, I'm not the the most uh, comfortable person doing um, doing kind of self promotional PR stuff, right? So some people love that, and that's that's great. And and there's guys like Gary Vaynerchuk and Tim Ferriss who are you know out there and huge personalities and 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 just fantastic at that. And and obviously they have a gift for it. That's not something that I do uh, that I'm 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 good at. And, you know, I found the PR for the automatic customer um, just personally kind of uh, draining uh, because I'm not that guy. And so it's a bit forced. And so, you know, uh, while I love, I love the business that we're in and I love thinking about the marketing of the value builder system, when it comes to marketing the book, uh, I struggle a bit. And, and so I think finding finding that, that natural voice, the way to talk about the book in a way that feels really natural and authentic, um, I've had trouble with and, and continue to do so. And it's just been, I mean, it was launched two or three weeks ago. So it's been, it's been uh, a fairly, so I'm not sure if that's a huge challenge, Charlie, but it's certainly one that's got a top of mind right now. No, I, I want to pause and, and really appreciate you for sharing that though, because you know, you're one of those guys that you can look at and say, he's got it all figured out. He's got this book and you know, all those types of things when, you know, sometimes sometimes you, you put on the hat and you wear it, but you might not like the hat, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, and so I, yeah. I, that's a good challenge, man. That's, I really appreciate you sharing that. 
My pleasure. Okay. My pleasure. So if people remember nothing else about you and your work, what's the one thing you want them to take away from this episode? I think that for your business to be valuable, it's really got to run without you. And, and that was the theme of Built to Sell, but it's also really the theme of the automatic customer, the, this notion that, that you've got to create some recurring revenues, some annuity streams, so that when that um, day comes where you want to pull out of the business day to day, there's something there that will continue beyond, beyond your involvement. Thanks so much for that. All right, Creative Giants. So you heard it from John Warlow here. What are you building that can live and grow without you? Think about that. Think about what you're going to do and put that in your business, your creative endeavor, or your job today. Thanks. And until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, Creative Giant.